asking them why was there a flood? Where did all the water come from? Did God give people warning about the flood? And what happened and how? And where did all the water go? So that, that first question of what evidence is there for the flood? This comes up a lot if you talk with people who aren't Christians and they say, well, if there really was a global flood, shouldn't we see evidence for that flood everywhere we look? All around us, after all, it's supposed to be a global flood. So let's look at that and say, yes, there, was, there is evidence if you look for it. So the first evidence I'd like to look at is actually Mars. Maybe a strange place to start with looking for evidence for a flood on Earth. But as astro astronomers started looking at Mars and telescopes started getting better, they started seeing valleys and canyons in Mars and that. And then a few years later, telescopes got better and they could start figuring out, seeing the erosion that happened on those valleys and canyons. And they could tell, oh, looking at those erosion patterns, it looks like water carved out all these canyons and valleys on Mars. And looking at that, and they looked all over Mars, and they saw these canyons everywhere. So now the sort of accepted theory is that those were all carved by a global flood on Mars. So all these valleys and canyons. And now, so the logical thing to take that to the next step, find another planet that has those same sort of valleys and canyons that have been eroded by water. Logical conclusion, there would be a global flood there on that planet too. And there is another planet that has that. It's this planet. We have those valley, same valley, valleys and canyons carved out by water. That's sort of some evidence for the flood. If you also look at strata or rock layers, these are also called sedimentary layers because they were laid down by water. You find these rock layers all over the planet. So if you have layers of rock laid down by water all over the planet, there's probably water all over the planet. Sounds like a global flood. At the same time, these stratas have you look at, like if you've seen pictures of the Grand Canyon, you can often see the stripes and the rocks. That's what the stratas are. And so some places you'll see, they aren't straight like that. They actually like twist and curve in like ish shapes or something. <coughs> and now, if you've worked with rock, you probably say, if you try and bend rock like that to make it into an ish shape, it doesn't really bend, it just cracks. So the only known way to get it to do that with the sedimentary rocks is that when it settles out of the water, it's still like mud or clay, you bend it then, and then it hardens and becomes rock. You get that S layer through all those different strata. And so the only way to get that is if all the, that rock was laid down at the same time and hardened at the same time. So that was more evidence for the flood. Also those rock layers, if you look at the Grand Canyon, they're very straight between those different rock layers. And so what's that showing is there wasn't erosion between the times they were laid down, so it didn't lay, lay down one layer and have erosion where rivers and rain would cut it and then lay down another layer. So the fact that there's no erosion between them sort of shows they're all laid down at the same time. It's sort of the same event, like a global flood. Finally, if you look at fossils, there's these things called polystrate fossils. Polystrate, mini strata. So it's fossils that go through lots of these different strata. And it, that, the only known way that that happened is if all those stratas were laid down at the same time. In fact, even if you look at evolutionary papers that talk about polystrate fossils, they say, well, those layers that are around the fossil, they were all laid down at the same time. It's just the other layers where there aren't fossils. Those were laid down at millions of years apart. It's like, so, well, if they're the same, except one has a fossil going through it, probably the same thing caused them both, so they were all laid down at the same time. So if you talk about, talk to geologists who object to saying there wasn't a global flood, 
I'd say it's probably not so much that there isn't evidence for it, or there's a lack of evidence for it. It's probably more due to, I would think, where that flood is first mentioned to us. So they're objecting to something else. And so if it comes from in this book, and this book was right about the flood, maybe it was right about the reason for the flood. So it's a judgment of man, and maybe it was, maybe the ark really did exist. Maybe there really is a God. Maybe really we're created rather than evolving. Maybe there really is a standard we're supposed to live by, and violating that standard is sin. And maybe we really will be held accountable if we, for that violation, held accountable to God. So maybe their objections really are a reason to cut that line of reasoning off in the start. So maybe their objections really aren't as scientific or intellectually based as you, they would have you believed. Maybe they are really more morally based. And maybe they just don't want to have to live with that accountability to God for their behavior. So there's a lot more evidences than just that too. Like for instance, if you go to anthropology, anthropologists went out across all the world. They found all these different people groups to study and studying their cultures. One thing they found was almost every people group they found, there was, I think the count is up to like 272 different people groups now, they found have a very similar story. The story is about how there was a global flood with very few people surviving, and they survived by being on some sort of boat or small island. And this was very puzzling to them because when they looked at the, they, they looked at all these different cultures and they couldn't find any reason why so many of these different cultures, some of which had no contact with any other cultures, had, all had such similar stories. But if you put those stories in context of the Bible, it all seems to make pretty much sense. Because how about this for a reason? Prior to the flood, everybody spoke one language. When Noah and his kids and their wives got on the ark, they spoke one language. When they got off the ark at the end of the flood, they spoke one language. And then they started to multiply and have kids and that. Maybe his grandkid come, came to Noah. Hey, Noah, can you tell us a story? What well, stories he's going to tell? Well, he had this pretty big event that happened in his life, the flood. Maybe he told them of that story. And so he's told all these people a story of the flood. And then these people moved east into the plains of Shinar after the flood. And they started to build the Tower of Babel. And then God confused their languages. So these different groups now, if I can't communicate with you, I can't understand you, you can't understand me. But those people over there, I can understand them and communicate with them. So I'll go over and hang out with them. So these different people groups started forming. But God... He only confused their languages. He didn't erase their memories. So when these different people group formed, they still all knew the story of the flood they'd been told. And then, as it says in Genesis 11, Genesis 11 a couple times, God then moved these people groups across the face of the earth. And so when he moved these people groups across the face of the earth, what stories did they take with them? The story they knew, the story of the flood. So if you put it in the context of the Bible, the fact that all these different people groups have that very similar story, it's very understandable and makes sense even. And so that was some of the evidence. There's a lot more evidence for the flood, and maybe we'll see some more of it later on, but let's move on to the second question. Why was there a flood? So for that I'll go to Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5. It says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. 
both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. So I skip down to verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So this is saying that, why was there a flood? Because God needed to judge man. They had become corrupt and corrupt creation, and the flood was a way for him to, to judge them. So only Noah and his family survived on the ark with the animals they had with them. And so one objection you often hear from people too is Noah couldn't have fit all those animals on the ark. We have some blame for that in ourselves because we've done a lot of children's books or children's toys where we pitch the ark as this little boat with giraffe heads sticking out of it and monkeys hanging off the railing, this nice little boat. So this sort of, could you fit all the animals on that? No, but that's not what the ark was. If you look at ark, it, when it was the word that was used to describe the ark, it wasn't a word that meant boat or ship. It actually meant box or coffin. And this box was 450 feet long, 70 feet wide, and 45 feet tall with three floors in it. That's a big box. Say, okay, that's a big box. But you think, maybe it still wasn't big enough to hold all the species of animals. That's right, but you know what? Noah didn't have to take all the species of animals. He only had to take kinds of animals. So when he took, he had to take a cat kind. He didn't have to take lions and tigers and ocelots and lynxes and domesticated cats and cheetahs and all the different types of cats. He only had to take one cat kind. And even more that, he didn't even have to take all the kinds. He only had to take some of the kinds. And we'll get see more of that later as it comes up under another question. So that's sort of why there was a flood. It was there was a judgment of man's sin upon the earth. And where did all the water come from? If we look at Second Peter three, starting in verse three, it says, "Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of him coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation." For this they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was was overflowed with water, perished. So you can see in verse 5, when he made, it's talking about creation, when the word of God, that's Jesus, made creation, he made it out of the water and in the water. So there was a lot of water underneath the creation to earth he had made. Now if we look at Genesis chapter 7, in verse 11, it explains more about how this water came out. So, it says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, remember that, by the way, we'll come back to that, six, it was the 600th year of his life. In the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day where all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. So, we had the creation, and we saw in Second Peter, sitting out, raised out of water, sitting in water, fountains of the great deep opened, sending the water up in the air, Windows of heaven open, allowing the water to come back down to earth as rain. So you actually see that in verse 12 too. So it says, and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So the water came from where it had been, under the earth and around the earth, and the earth was in it. And so 
I guess we saw there that the old world perished, and, and perished by being buried under these lock, layers of sedimentary rock that we talked about at the start. So it perished it. And by the way, that's why we can't find where the Garden of Eden is. Why? Because it's buried under all these sedimentary layer rocks, and it's sort of the flood wiped out the earth and made a new one, so we don't, can't find where that uh, Garden of Eden is. Some people say, well, hold on, we, we know about the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and they were described before the flood, and they still exist today. I say to that, if you look at that, it's probably more people reusing names. We have a Vancouver, Washington, a Vancouver, British Columbia. They're not the same city, they just have the same name. So similar, you know, that probably knew of the Euphrates and the Tigris River. They were on the ark, they got off, they saw these rivers, just gave them the same names. So that's sort of where all the water came from. Let's move on to, did God give the people warning of the flood? The common answer you'll probably get, if you ask most people who know about the, the flood, and believe in the flood, is that Noah preached for 120 years about the flood. The Bible actually, though, doesn't actually say that. I believe it's probably true because it says Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and he knew about the coming flood, so he probably did preach about it. But the Bible never actually said he did preach about the flood. But people actually had a lot more warning than that, that the flood was coming. And so... The reason I say that is because Noah had a great-grandfather named Enoch. And Enoch, who walked with God, preached about a coming judgment. If we look at Jude chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So his great-granddaughter was even preaching about the coming judgment. You might say, well, okay, I can kind of see that. That might be a little weakest evidence of, of a warning for a coming flood. Okay, so let's pull on that and do, build a little more. I'm not going to go there to read it now, but if you look in getting my information from Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 through 29, Enoch had a son named Methuselah. And it says in there, when Methuselah was 187 years old, he had a son named Lamach. And when Lamach was 182 years old, he had a son, Noah. So that means Noah, if you add those years together, 187, 182, was 369 years younger than Enoch, or younger than Methuselah. And so Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. So if Noah was 369 years younger, it means when Methuselah died, Noah was 600 years old. As we saw when we looked at the verse, that was the year the flood came when Noah was 600 years old. Why is this important and why is this a warning? Well, let's look at the name Methuselah. We've seen, I think Pastor Lamar both said, when you look at people's names in the Hebrew, they often carry meaning. So Methuselah is sort of made up of three parts. First part, myth, can mean man, mortality, or death. When you add the U on it to get Methu, it means his. So it's like death, his. And then the last part, Salah, has two forms, a noun form and a verb form. The noun form, it can mean a dart or a missile. In a verb form, it means to send or shall send. So his name, you could say, one interpretation of it was death, his, shall send. Putting it in modern vernacular, it means when he dies, it shall be sent. So now we have a prophet who prophesied about a coming judgment. He has a son, and he names his son. When he dies, it shall be sent. 
that's a little stronger warning that comes out. And by the way, you also find in the Bible, people say, well, the God in the Old Testament was vindictive and judgmental. God in the New Testament is about grace in that. Just Methuselah's life here shows God's grace in the Old Testament. And one thing about Methuselah, he has the longest lifespan of anybody quoted in the Bible at 969 years long. And his name was, when he dies, it shall be sent. Talking about judgment coming. So, in God's grace, he gave him the longest lifespan of any known man to give people the time to repent. And so, if you want to talk about, I'll move on to what happened and how. So, if we go back to Genesis chapter 7, verse 11 and 12, which we just read, we'll read those again. So, verse 11. In the 600 years of Noah's life, in the second month, 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. And the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So in verse 12, that word rain there, there's two different Hebrew words that can mean rain. Matar, which is more how we would just use normally rain, being like the common rain. There's another word, gishim, which is actually used in the verse 12 for the rain. And this more means like a violent rain that you would accompany like hurricanes or uh, we might say torrential rain, monsoon rains. So that 40 days and 40 nights in verse 12 is not just a light rain that water slowly comes down. It's a torrential rain that's pouring down in a, a heavy rain. So let's move on to Genesis 7, 17. Let me say, and the flood was 40 days upon the earth and the waters increased and bare up the ark and it was lift up above the earth. And the waters prevailed and were increasing, increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the water prevail, and the mountains were covered. By the way, this is saying, you notice that? All the high hills under the whole heaven. This wasn't a local flood, it was global. It was covered by 15 cubits of water, which is about 22, 23 feet. So, it's a lot of water covered the entire planet. It was global, not local. Let's continue on in verse 21. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, and all that was in the dry land died. So remember I said earlier that Noah didn't have to take all the kinds on the ark. He only had to take some of the kinds. So this verse 22 is giving us what kinds he needed to take. There's sort of two criteria. It was kinds that lived on dry land and had the breath of life in their nostrils. So what does this mean for the kinds that Noah needed to take on the ark? He didn't need to take any fish, didn't need to take any whales, didn't need to take any octopi, didn't need to take any dolphins, no animals that lived in the water did he need to take. Uh, it's also possible that he didn't have to take any insects. Why's that? Because insects don't breathe through nostrils, so they don't fit those two criteria of what was wiped out in the flood. And so if we look at this now in this description of how the flood happened, how the great windows of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened, there's been models built out of this that explain a lot of things in geology that if you look at secular geologists and what they can explain, don't really explain very well. And they don't have satisfying explanations for them in the secular world. And so I'd like you to believe they have everything figured out, but there's a lot of things they don't actually or can't actually explain. 
So I just listed some of them that came to mind last night when I was writing this up. The Grand Canyon, continental shelves and slopes, ocean trenches, sea mounts and table mounts, earthquakes, submarine canyons, glaciers in the Ice Age, frozen mammoths, magnetic variations in the ocean floor, major mountain ranges, overthrusts, volcanoes and lava, geothermal heat, metamorphic rock, wind gaps and water gaps, plateaus and planation surfaces, salt domes, fossil graveyards, the jigsaw puzzle-like fit of the continents, mid-oceanic ridges, all of these things, if you go to secular geologists, they might know why they happened, but they can't really explain how, how or why they form and why they are that actually way. But if you look at the models for the flood that we have, they explain all those things and come out of, they come out of those things. So now, the last question, where did all the water go? This might be the easiest question to answer of them all. So if you go down to the waterfront in Seattle, look out over Puget Sound, you're looking at flood water. So the oceans cover 74% of the surface of this planet and contain the water from the flood. So that's it. So I, so in closing, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't go back to 2 Peter 3 and as Paul Harvey says, tell the rest of the story. So looking at 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 5, it says, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word the heavens by the word, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. So that's talking about creation and the word of God, Jesus, doing that creation. Verse 6, whereby the world that was being overflowed with water perished. That's talking about the flood. But the rest of the story comes in verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, so that's this current world, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment the perdition of ungodly men. So what's that saying? It's saying there is another judgment coming. It isn't a judgment of, by water, it's a judgment by fire, whatever that means. And it's not an ark you need to be aboard, but a person you need to believe in. That word of God, Jesus Christ, is the current ark. If you do not know that you're saved from this judgment to come, there's only one way you can know that. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says... We are all on our way to hell in a Christless eternity. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can't be good enough to earn your way to heaven. Our righteousness are filthy rags that God in his mercy sent his son, Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and did exactly as the Father told him to do, was crucified on the cross, taking our penalty, was buried, rose again three days later, taking away our sin. If you recognize your condition and trust in Christ for salvation, then you can trust in Christ as your Lord and trust in his saving grace. You can be saved from this coming judgment and have an eternity in heaven. Do you know you have that eternity? If you don't know that, you can know that today by trusting in Jesus Christ, God's only son. There is another judgment coming. Are you ready for it?